My rowing got to a point where I was being recruited by the you know top universities in the in the U.S. Um, little did they know my grades were so bad that they wouldn't take me. <laughs> and yeah, that's another story altogether. Welcome back to Gamble's Green Room. I'm your host, Mike Gamble, bringing you the people you need to know with the stories you want to hear. Today, I'm joined by another little bro of mine from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia. He is a former National Collegiate Swimming Champion. He is a former International World Champion uh, rower. He placed 16th at the 2005 World Championships representing Palestine, and he is the first rower in history to place that high rowing uh, for Palestine and representing Palestine. Um, he's actually mentoring another next-generation rower representing Palestine as well. Uh, he's partly responsible for things you know from the payments department at Apple. He's been part of the things you've been experiencing in user interface with Mercedes-Benz. He's my little bro. We're going to talk about all this and more. Please welcome Mark Jerban in the house. Hey, thank you for having me, Mike. I really appreciate uh, it. Thanks for being here. You know, it's... Uh, it's a little different for people because they're used to like dancers and entertainers, but as your history, your stories intertwine sports, which are entertainment, as well mm-hmm. as the user interface stuff that you've been doing with the entertainment companies and luxury brand companies that we now know, you are definitely, and then just in general, your stories need to be told. So as I've said in my, nice. uh, my show description. It's the people you need to know with the stories you want to hear representing game changers and everything that they do. So not just dancers, even though I have a lot of access to them, my people in my life are people you need to know. So, uh, damn. Nice. I like, I like how that sounds. It sounds like, uh, I might be actually somewhat more important if I'm, if I'm nearby your, your, your neck of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> you are important. That's why you're also in my life. That's the thing. Like I keep the people around. So, uh, as everybody knows, I like to start at the beginning, uh, and then we take it to wherever it goes. So you are, of course, from the Illadel, Philadelphia, Lower Marion. That's right. That's right. Uh, born and raised uh, in uh, Philadelphia. Um, I guess Philadelphia. We, we could probably go real far back if you'd like. So it gets it gets to be quite fun here. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, my, my parents um, actually are, are a little bit different than I think most of the other average parents. My, my mother is actually Jewish. Uh, my father is uh, Muslim-Palestinian. And um, my parents actually met um, while my mother was, at, was actually at a kibbutz in, uh, in Israel um, next to my father's village. And uh, she was actually on the beach. And, um, you know, they, he basically walked up to her while, while she was lying on the beach sometime, uh, just kind of like casually discussing. And uh, they were actually speaking originally in Hebrew. And, uh, you know, she thought, she thought my dad was, was Jewish actually, I think at the beginning because of, <laughs> because of the Hebrew. Um, but I think he, they quickly, they, they quickly kind of understood where, where they were coming from afterwards. And that's how they actually met. And um, I think after falling in love in like the end of the seventies, the they, um, you know, my my mother's my mo- my mother's family actually had a bit of a I think of a problem with with uh, with my mom getting together with a Palestinian and also a Muslim at that point, um, and my father's family, which is which is uh, in a village called Zisla Zarka, 
which is uh, like now I think the last or one of the last um, Israeli Arab uh, villages on the coast of, of Israel. So they actually like if you take a look at the coast, most of the Israeli Arab villages that are like seaside are basically mm-hmm. being wiped out. Um, in this respect, they're to, to geographically lo- locate them. That's like somewhere along the lines of um, there's a there's a port city from the Roman Empire called uh, uh, Caesarea or Caesarea, it depends what language you're speaking, which mm-hmm. at the time was the largest uh, Roman port city um, of the Roman Empire. And um, right next to this, th- this area is actually an area where they have, um, you know, um, aqueducts and unbelievably beautiful landscape. It's actually home of billionaires in Israel. Like, you know, there's there's really very wealthy people. And right next to there is literally the poorest village in all of of israel um you know extremely low literacy rate um a lot of uh uh crime and a lot of things there and that's my father's village so i mm. literally come from from uh this area called just Azarka. um so yeah i mean from from that point my parents um my, my mother was accepted from my dad's side immediately they didn't even think twice about um you know oh she's jewish or not no no one no one really cares about that there they're more about like okay um this see my mom is a good person that's how they mm-hmm. measured you know if this thing would kind of work and um eventually back in the in the 70s and i still think it's even a law today um my parents were not legally allowed to get married in israel um because they were from two separate kind of uh, like like Jews were not allowed to marry. Uh, my understanding is, and I could be wrong on, on some of this, but at least like Jews cannot marry, for example, like Christians or whatever else locally. And you have to go elsewhere. My father, obviously being Muslim, I think, and, and also Palestinian was a pretty big thing. Um, so they actually went over to um, Cyprus and they flew out to Cyprus and they ended up getting married there because they were actually allowed to. And then, you know, came back um, back over to, to Israel. My mother then flew back to the U.S. and she was pregnant with me. And at that point, um, my father got into the U.S. Um, literally one day before I was born. So <laughs> re- re- really crazy, like talking about timing, unless my mom really timed that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so so quick question. You said your mom flew back to the U.S. Was she on holiday visiting when she met your dad on the beach? Yeah. So so what happens is, is when when people go to like a kibbutz, um, mm-hmm. like in, like in um, especially within Israel, they go there to study like Jewish culture and mm-hmm. like really understand like more about, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a, I don't want to compare it to like a compound kind of thing, but you go there for like, you know, understanding the culture, lifestyle, uh, helping build things out. Like the last time I was actually at the village, um, the uh, kibbutz had also like fish farms and stuff nearby. So they really tried to like cultivate things and, and, and make it look quite, quite nice. Right. Um, but my mother, she was born and raised actually in Philadelphia, but has, um, you know, uh, her descendant is really her descendants are really from um you know i think it goes as far back as as what we were able to trace on her side some of the family is from um uh love which is which is in uh, ukraine uh, modern day ukraine oh. interesting yeah yeah so that, that was interesting uh, history to kind of uh, learn about why our family they left in the 1890s during the there's a big mass exodus of Jews from Europe around that time. Mm-hmm. And my mother's family um, actually came during that, that, that uh, time frame. And um, they, the family then was um, like ultra Orthodox, um, 
really ultra religious, if you will, like my, my mother's uh, grandparents. And then the next generation was like, you know, her parents and everyone else started getting a little easier. My mother, um, you know, obviously grew like I grew up on like Jewish tradition. I was bar mitzvah and everything, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, separating my meat and cheese with everything and eating on certain, you know, certain things were kind of, um, you know, not really an issue with my, with my mother. The kosher uh, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but after, um, after my father came, um, you know, he had to adapt, um, to obviously to American lifestyle. So first he was highly questioned on like, why are you marrying my daughter kind of thing? You know, like you're, you're, you know, it, it was almost like, you know, the, the, these kind of questions today are, are almost like a, a form of racism, if you will, mm-hmm. or discrimination. And, um, you know, my father just kind of like, you know, kept his head high and stayed focused on just trying to, to prove who he was, which was, he was a good guy. Right. Um, he came out, he had, to, um, you know, learn English. He, he went to, he went to school over at, uh, nearby, like at a, like a UPenn, uh, language course or something like somewhere around nearby there. Mm-hmm. Um, he had some, some local friends. Um, and he really just kind of like started to understand how the, how the culture and everything in America worked. So for him, um, obviously America was such a huge change with regards to like opportunity mm-hmm. and um, being able to kind of understand what the world is outside of being constrained and confined in the small village. Um, and I think, I think that for my dad was, was something that was really special. Um, that was like, you know, most people kind of talk about like American dreams being dead or this or that. Mm-hmm. Um, certain individuals who come from constrained scenarios, um, and even today, you know, you have like your Iran's, Iraq's, um, Afghanistan, and, and so on. You have people who come from such constrained lifestyles that everyone else just really takes this stuff for granted, doesn't yeah. even realize what they have, right? Um, so that's something which I think, you know, I, I learned from what my father had. And when I, when I grew up, yeah, I would say I had it way easier than he did, uh, for at least from, from that regard. But he was constantly, um, always, you know, having to prove himself, I think, to an extent, but he always did it in such a way that, you know, people thought, Oh, this guy is Israeli. So he's got to be Jewish. He's not, he's not Israeli Arab. He speaks perfect Hebrew. He's, uh, you know, he, he gets along. He has such a nice political, uh, viewpoint. And his political viewpoint is simply peace. So how, how hard is that? You know, right? <laughs> That's uh, because you know, you know, everybody else knows the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which I'm going to be one of the people to say. And but it's not really a conflict. It's just fucking all-out, just war on people. But uh, the as it's called in media terms, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is so separatist. It's so almost Zionist of mm-hmm. the of the way that one Palestinians are regarded and uh, talked about, mm-hmm. and the way that the Israelis uh, are talked about, and especially with the finances and the the recognition and the international support for both sides that, you know, you're, we haven't even gone deep into it yet. Cause there's a part of this that you've experienced uh, in your lifetime as well, but your parents are literally the example that these relations can work. 
mm-hmm. if yeah. people wanted them to. And it's, and it's, and it's not about just the people wanting it to, it's mm. people wanting it to work. As you right. said, he had, he had to prove himself to your mom's family and his family was like, Oh, of course we'll accept. Oh, like, that's fine. We love you. You love blah, blah, blah. He had to prove himself to her family, but after a while, you know, it worked out, but it's still that same core factor of how the U S is founded on this. You know, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just this vicious cycle around the world. And we see this happening internationally. Poland, Hungary, Germany happened. Sweden, it's happening into as well. Denmark, like it's everywhere. And you, it, and it's horrible that quote unquote history repeats itself, but it's not. People just perpetuate the stupidity and the ideologies of everything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's at one point, it's going to sound so just what's the word cheesy, but I like, of course, you know, I love mom and dad. They like, they're awesome. <laughs> But it's just for me, it's just so such a simple story of love conquers all. Like literally, it's if everybody freaking loved, the world would be an easier place. (laughs) I it's it's really that simple, people. It really is that simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it's as simple as that, or I think, you know, most of the time I've heard uh years ago, like stories of like an, an Israeli and like a Palestinian tennis player playing together. And people thought that was amazing. And I kind of sit there and I kind of go like, well, what are we then? Like, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, thank you. I appreciate it. But I guess it'd be completely ignored. No one tells that story. And it's, it's all about the narrative. Right. I was, Oh, took the words right out of my mouth because that those two people playing together doesn't perpetuate the story that people want to be told. Right. That right, narrative right. of this, these two things are destructive and they can't, they're oil and water. They can't live together. It's like, it can happen. You're just literally feeding the fire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that, you know, it was difficult years ago. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I ended up leaving the U S after a certain mm-hmm. point. We'll probably get to that later. But, um, one of the things that I think people from the U S now can relate a little bit more is that they finally, have started seeing, you know, narratives and extreme scenarios. Yeah. So um, if we take a look at um, the Trump era, mm-hmm. um, that's something which really changed people's perspectives on politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something where people said, well, no, we, we could never go that extreme. Or And you see stuff that's like clearly not true being stated. And all of a sudden you have to question your general narratives, right? right. Um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is... is if we want to call it that, it's the same thing, except it's it's more or less it's a modern day apartheid mm-hmm. um, is, is what it is, right? Um, we've experienced the same things in the U.S. Uh, back up until the 60s, um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm mm-hmm. X, all these great guys like laid the groundwork to make the change in the country happen. Um, but now we're seeing, again, like another repeat of, of history in another location with another different type of scenario where you have... Israeli Arabs who are by by definition also Palestinian um, being discriminated against or not offered opportunities or um, just kind of you know placed in situations that are just not equal mm-hmm. and when you see that kind of thing happen you know especially with like how soldiers may you know shoot someone or do this or that that goes into a point where that's gone from discriminatory to oppressive. Right. You have an oppressive scenario, right? 
that's that's literally what was happening in the 60s in the states you know you have people who are getting like up until the 60s so you had fire hoses you had lynchings you had shootings you had a lot of different things that were oh they still happen now they're just different yeah yeah well this is this is the case right right and and so um the way it's framed is you know it's being framed versus like this this villain narrative mm. like you have a superhero and villain this is how society loves to work it, it, yeah. apparently um but you see like this villain narrative and uh, someone always has to be the bad guy there's never there's never this story of where where are the humans involved right and those are the pieces where i look at this and i go you know if, if anyone wants to have a chance in solving not just this problem but anything else in general you have to kind of look at it and go okay how how would this be solved from a humanitarian perspective what would what would your mom and dad do in a situation where it's like a kindergarten? I mean, right. it goes down as granular as this, but you have to think about what's right and wrong. And of course, you know, someone can justify and say, well, this side is always doing this and this side is always doing this. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Right. Sit there and think about what what side is doing what, and they know that that's wrong, so that should stop. And then this side should also know that that should stop and then figure out how to compromise. It's as simple as that, but it's very hard for people to do. It's not hard for people to do. They just don't want to do it. It perpetuates money and power. And we're not going to go down the political route just now, but it literally is. It perpetuates money and power. And that's why rationalism isn't a thing anymore. Party lines are drawn. People are deciding. I guess we're going down the political route, but not too deep. But the thing is, it's uh, the U.S. is the best example of it. Decisions are being made on party lines versus what is the greater good for the people. It's not about what's right or what's wrong. It's not about this is the right thing to do. It's you want this to happen, so we're not going to do this. Or this is not what I want to happen, so I'm not going to do it. And again, you take you take away the power structure that that is founded in. None of these people would want to do what they were doing. If there if there if there wasn't money. If there wasn't, it's like residual money. Like they're not even working for it. The money's just coming into from sponsorships and lobbying and stuff like that. Yeah. But if the if the money structure wasn't there, none of these people would want to have these jobs. None of these people mm-hmm. would want to be lifetime politicians. Like it's mm-hmm. it's that simple. You go back to it, and I remember I remember I read it was maybe t- a year or two ago that they mm-hmm. unanimous unanimous unanimously made the decision. <laughs> to take away uh daylight saving time mm-hmm. and i was like wait a minute you can unanimous unanimous i can't even say the fucking word you, you can unanimously it. make a decision about something so arbitrary so it is it is possible for you to work together and make a consensus on something that should change but you don't want to because it doesn't perpetuate your narrative of this person's good this person's bad this is good this is evil i'm right you're wrong the, yeah. the choices are easy to make. People don't want to make them because of money and power structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also it's also interesting. Um, I won't get too political, but like comparing what I've seen in the German political systems versus the American systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American system is just you have only you're right or you're wrong. It's only a, it's only a fifty percent chance of getting something right or wrong in a person's perspective. You can't really have a mixed scenario. You, you, you vote for one party, that party mm-hmm. can't think differently in one specific way. Right. Whereas in Germany, um, you know, they have like coalitions and some other governments mm-hmm. have this as well. Sweden has the like, same. 
Yeah, and, and and surprisingly, they get some really interesting policies done because they have to find a way of working together, and they come up with some policies that the people actually voted for. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, what's interesting is that you'll see things change for the for the good or for the better, and sometimes it's it's bad. And guess what? People can come come back and change and vote, and then the systems be based on how people have voted for certain parties. You know, a party that's been in power for you know, 10 years can all of a sudden be completely out or have like less than X percent um, and other parties can shoot and rise right up out of nowhere. And that's just something that will, will never happen right now with U.S. politics or it hasn't happened in the last couple hundred years. It's not going you have, to. Yeah, you have you have this system that is just, you know, it's so black and white that it really um, doesn't give people a choice. It's almost like, you know, without having that choice, is that really, you know, true freedom? But that's right. that's another thing. That's a- that's that that that's another that's another Gamble's Green Room episode <laughs> where we go into <laughs> the politics of it all. <laughs> all right, so mom moves back to the U.S. Dad lands the day before you're born, which is the end of 1979. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, what was it like for you growing up in Philly? Because you have some, oh, was, you have some interesting classmates as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. I guess yeah. like during, during the line, yeah. So, um, yeah, growing up, like we were pretty much uh, living in like just the the within the constraints of, of Philadelphia until we moved down around uh, to like the main line area, um, where I ended up uh, going to middle school. Like Bella, like I went to Penwin Elementary, then Bella Kingwood Middle School, then then uh, Lower Marion High School. And, um, during that time, um, yeah, my, my parents, um, you know, we, we came, I think from a pretty good background, uh, and then they, we ran into some, um, let's say issues where we had to move a lot. Um, so we actually moved, I think somewhere around like six times, um, when I was still, um, up until through high school. So it was kind of hard to, you know, I would, I would make my friends, my parents always worked extremely hard to stay within, um, a very specific uh, neighborhood. So we, I always stayed with that uh, Lower Marion so that, to, so that my parents actually kept me in the same school system. That was actually like their main motivation. Um, that piece I think was, was unbelievably critical when I, when I compare, um, you know, now what, what I'm doing with my own kids where mm-hmm. I made sure that I'm always keeping, keeping them in Germany in the system around here in the same local district and not moving them around everywhere my work is. Right. Because otherwise they would go through they would go through hell and that's horrible, you know. Um, so yeah, my parents my parents did that. Um, may May I ask what the situation was that caused you to move around? Yeah, sure, sure. So like, um, my parents uh, we had some family difficulties, and um, in terms of like, my mother took over a business and then um, had to give a lot of that business uh, over to um, her stepmother and that ultimately kind of destroyed the business and then also mm-hmm. caused a lot of like a chain Friction. effect. If you will. Yeah, yeah. So it was really, really tricky for my, my parents. Um, my father actually, um, because of, I think some of like when they tried to establish like a new office actually spent some time, like a few days in jail, which was actually kind of like crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really, really nuts. Um, that was something which, um, Kind of came out of, out of out of out of nowhere. My parents actually kept it from me from actually knowing for quite some time. And then I, I was over at a friend's place once. My, my friend Kevin, I remember this, and uh, his mother 
actually came up to me and was like, I heard, I saw your dad's name was in the newspaper. Is he like, okay. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. And that's why I learned like he had like a few days where, you know, he had to go through all of this um, all because of money, you know, and, um, and that kind of thing. And that was money and family. Um, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things can and, and will be tough at times. Um, but that's what my family had to go through. My parents honestly sheltered me a lot from it, which was pretty amazing. And also my sisters. So, mm-hmm. I've got two uh, younger uh, twin sisters. They were born in uh, 1985, uh, and uh, I think like the first uh, the first few years, we we I would say really not just it's not sibling rivalry. We hated each other. <laughs> <laughs> we were really really up in each other's throats. We could we could not stand each other. It was actually when I, when I take a look at my kids today, I've got almost tears in my eyes because they get along so well in comparison, but me and my sisters, we hated each other. And, and it was, was two also, against one. <laughs> always two against one. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely them always, uh, framing me for certain things or other things. I remember I had pets. Um, I remember as a big fan of, uh, of guinea pigs and my sisters, like, you know, kind of ended up killing them uh with through various means which was horrible for me so going through that kind of situation was a little bit traumatic growing up if you will um but i think aside, aside from that piece um everything else was kind of like yeah they were they were they were a little bit tough um my sisters had problems i think with uh with school for a little while they got kicked out of like something like three or four daycares because they were just so wild and um I can't say that it, it wasn't just my, like my parents raised them fine. It was like just the fact that they were just generally, you know, um, really, really off the wall. And that's how they were. And, you know, it was, we did, we just had these kind of crazy personalities and we we're kids. Right. Yeah. So eventually, you know, my sisters today are amazing. You know, they've done, they've done really well. Yes. Um, I know them. <laughs> so when, yeah, when I, when I, when I, by the time I met them, I would have never known any of this. <laughs> oh, there's stories. There's stories. Um, <laughs> But it was like, you know, you know, growing up with my sisters and going through like all of this, um, this stuff, like funny enough, it's like we were we were growing up um, very much in like a Jewish society. Like I would say, like we grew up in like a Jewish neighborhood. Um, My sisters um, were, I think, when we were when we were growing up and like in the summers, we go to like a summer camp called Ghana Israel, which was like this this like orthodox uh, uh, camp for for mostly for Jewish kids who would end up going I, you know, we were at the JCC, the Jewish Community Center, mm-hmm. um, and I, I would I would actually um, work there quite often. Um, and yeah, like I also did the Maccabi Games, which was quite interesting. So like, which was like the the junior Maccabi Games, um, which is basically like as a kid, it's like the Olympics for Jews and and um, uh, in the U.S. And they have like different different um, cities where you go to to compete against each other. Um, so they'd have like a big event during the year and you'd have like literally like hundreds of hundreds of kids, if not thousands, I would say, uh, competing against each other in swimming and track and field, basketball, every, everything you think of. So like this whole sports stuff was was always around me, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, like g- growing up in, and being in like a Jewish neighborhood and then always hearing about like, you know, people, you know, with their different perspectives on Israel for me was always was always quite interesting just to kind of be like, OK, like. I'm getting pieces here, but I'm not registering at the moment. So So I have two questions and I don't know which one to ask first because they're both going to go in different directions, but I'll I'll take, I'll take this one first. So you grew up pretty much 
Jewish uh, with all the events, and you even said you had a bar mitzvah. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that a choice from your parents to lead the Jewish lifestyle, or were you st- were, were there still parts of the Palestinian side that were at home, but just not in public? Like, you know what I mean? What, what was the how did, how we? Yeah. Did, how, so, so it's, it's such a great question. Um, so when I, funny enough is that when I was younger, um, I visited my father's village and, um, while I was at the village, um, the, my cousins there, um, so my father's family is huge, by the way, has like, um, you know, a lot of inter- intermarriage, whatever you want to call it. I think we have someone around at least 800 direct relatives. It's pretty sizable. Um, wow. it's a massive family. Um, and th- that's this village to Sudazarka. And as I was there, um, you know, people taught me, they took, they would take me to the mosque. They would teach me how to actually pray. And, um, I remember coming back from the summers and I used to, I used to actually pray. I had a prayer mat. I would, I would pray, um, I would try to keep it the five times a day, believe it or not, um, just to, to kind of, to really go there. And, um, while I did that, I recognized also that I was Jewish because like, I, you know, I was growing up with them like this, this mixed kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. And the way I would keep up with that is that on Sundays I would go to Sunday school. So I would go to Hebrew school on Sunday. And so at Hebrew, Hebrew school on Sunday, I'd be, um, still doing my sports stuff, which would be karate, I think at the time and then swimming and I'd be praying. And so all these things up to a certain point. And while I was, while I was growing up, um, I started recognizing it's very hard to balance all of this because it's Mm -hmm. a lot of time that you'd lose. And plus I didn't have anyone else I knew outside of my my father who wasn't really practicing while in the States, like back, back in, back in, in the village, it's no problem. Um, he'd be around people who obviously would, he'd be able to to pray with. Um, but when he'd be in the States, that wouldn't really happen. And then, so for me, like I was doing it on my own for a while. And, um, my, my mom, I remember she's like, Oh, there's Mark. He's with his prayer mat. It's kind of fun. Like, so you kind of humor it in a way, uh, thinking it was kind of cute. And my father, you know, was kind of, you know, he smiled and didn't really say too much, but, you know, he'd let me do my own thing. And at a certain point, um, you know, I was, because I was surrounded by literally Jewish community, Jew, J, the JCC, which is mm-hmm. a Jewish community center, um, my, my, my peers in school, all Jewish, everyone's getting bar mitzvahed, uh, going to Sunday school, having a, like, there was nowhere that I was not surrounded by Judaism. Mm-hmm. So, so from that point, um, at some point, this this praying phase that I had to actually keep both. I try. I like when people would ask me, "What are you?" I'd say, "I'm, I'm Jewish and a Muslim." They would be like, "What? How is that? How is that possible?" <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this uh, does not equate. Does not equate. <laughs> yeah, it's like this. I'm like, well, you know, and, and for me, it was like it was it was kind of obvious that yes, of course, everything is possible. You just just your mindset just depends on how you do it. So, um, you know, eventually with, with all of that, like my, my understanding of, of Islam and, and, um, my praying actually eventually over time, like started to dissipate because I just moved my mind, moved into other interests. But I remembered, um, then still like people would start saying, well, you know, you seem like you're a lot more Jewish than you are Muslim. And I'm like, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, at first I kind of was, um, 
pretty much not really, you know, understanding where they're coming from. And over time, when, when, you know, tons of people say that to you all the time, mm. it just kind of wears you down. And as a person, like you kind of be like, yeah, I guess I'm not really practicing. I'm not really doing, I guess I've kind of chosen my path in a way. Mm. Um, so like, and I said, at a certain point I, I became a lot more like identified with that, that side of my, my life versus like, you know, I had my family, my village, uh, where my dad, my dad's from everyone who's there, who's, who's praying and, and everything else. And I, I think the biggest thing was, was being able to relate with that, having, having that special connection at least made me understand where people were coming from. So like when I, when I did eventually run into friends of mine who were Muslim, um, I remember I, I had a teacher in school, um, and she was, it was ninth grade. I remember this specifically. And there was another student in the class who, uh, my friend Omar, who I'm still, still in touch with this day, thanks to social media, right? <laughs> um, who, who's originally from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he was Muslim. And then when, when we were chatting and the, and the teacher overheard us, I was, I was like, you know, explaining, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm Muslim too. And, and like, and, and also Jewish. And, and he was like, you're not Muslim, you know? And he, and I'm like, well, why? And he's like, you don't look it. You don't look it. So <laughs> wait, was me, was this was, Omar no, or the teacher? That was that was that was Omar. But the teacher gets okay. interesting. So so the teacher, um, who by the way is African American in this sense, right? Mm-hmm. Also kind of affirms his assumptions. Going, Mark, you're telling you're telling stories. You're telling stories. So so we have a parents teacher night, and and during the parents teacher night for to having kind of like this this, this discussion. Um, she's talking to my parents and she says, look, we have to address something pretty serious. Your son is making these wild accusations that he is uh, both uh, uh, Jewish and Muslim. <laughs> and my mother just answers, well, 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 he is. <laughs> so, so to be fair, to be fair, the very next day, uh, the teacher that day ended up um, giving a, an apology in front of the entire class. And wow. everyone looked like what? Like it was. I was really impressed with her. Um, her name was Miss Luby, I think it was. She was. She was such a fantastic. I really, I, I, like, I really loved like how how well she she was able to like articulate herself. She was a really articulate uh, person, very friendly, and I always had respect for her. And that kind of caught me off guard. But when she apologized, it, it was a legitimate apology, which was really really cool. And um, those are the kind of things where you say, okay, if someone kind of reflected. And looked about like okay, there was a mistake. Why why hold anything further against them? Right. So, mm-hmm. so that, that that resonated for me. But it was also like another scenario. Like how how can you be this? Or it's that's not possible. There's no way you can you can pull off something like that, right? So um, went through a few few different instances of, of that through through uh, high school, and just had a lot more of this like you know, the separation of, of my Muslim side till a certain point, I was just much more like I considered myself then at a soul, soul point, like this, this evolution, if you will, of becoming like more Jewish, if, if you would say. Right? Well, it also was a safety, it was a identity safety for you in terms of social structure that it was, I don't want to say I'm not taking away from either side of you, but it was also easier for you to go if that's okay. Yeah. I'm this for you (laughs) like if that's if that's how you see it sure i'm that i know who i am but if this makes you easier it makes you feel more comfortable sure here we go yeah well to to be fair and this is where people have to think a bit about like how they influence others it's like at a certain point 
it, and at least back then, now it becomes stronger, but back then it was like, that would wear you down at a certain point where you start believing it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I was like, well, um, I want to be 50, 50. I want to be Jewish. I want to be Muslim, but the world doesn't see it that way. And at some point people always said, I remember always oh, so most of my par- my friends' parents, they'd always be like, at some point, you're probably going to have to choose. And I'm sitting there going like, you know, okay, I guess everyone's right. I'm being forced to do something here. When in fact, none of this existed, right? Like, right. You know, it, was, it was my own personal choice, you know? Um, so I think, I think over time, that was, that was one of my, I'd say, uh, I don't want to call it a regret really, but it was something I learned along the way um, that, you know, I was being pushed into one direction and I essentially almost ex- basically accepted it, if you will. So mm-hmm. at a certain point, if someone asked me, what are you? I literally, instead of going both, I would start transitioning to, okay, I'm, I guess I'm just Jewish. That's, yeah. that's what I am. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was something which I think my mother was very, obviously very, I was very happy that I would be involved in like, you know, Jewish culture and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And my father, I think because he had a bit of a, um, he was cautious so that people would accept him um, for what he, for what he was. He's a very well-respected guy gets along with, with, with everyone. Um, in that particular sense, I think he was a little bit like, don't want to say disappointed um, because like he just kind of said he accepted it for what it was. Cause he yeah. almost got pushed in the same way. He came into American society, saw the norms, saw how people were, and he knew at least in some parts he had to adopt, which meant that he, he'd lose a little bit of his old self. Right? Yeah. And you know, that ha- that's prevalent in the black culture, black American culture as well, that you have to present yourself a certain way to be accepted in certain social structures and including the work environment, as well as mixed kids who mm-hmm. sort of feel like they have to identify as one versus the other. We're like, Oh, you're too light to be black or you're too dark to be white. And they're like, well, my mom is my mom and that, but, ah, uh. but anyway, yeah, it's, again, it just goes back to those structures of society of believing everything that you're told that it can only be one way and not having the critical, the, the critical thought process to evaluate for yourself what could mm-hmm. be and what can't be. Um, my, one of my best friends, Evan and I have this statement, uh, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing just because mm-hmm. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because it doesn't exist in your world doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You don't have to see it for it to be a reality. It could be a reality for somebody else, but because you have to shift your perspective that, oh, you know what? I haven't experienced this yet. So maybe it is something that's valid for somebody else versus Mm -hmm. going, and you know, and and you know this from discrimination as well, where people like, oh, it couldn't have been that bad. No, you read, you read the situation wrong. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, We all know that story. Uh, no, oh, yeah. but they're so nice. They mean so well. You're thinking of the wrong. No, you're just, I'm no, you're just being silly right now. It's like mother fudge you like, no, come on, bro. I know what the hell I experienced and I've experienced it enough. Mm. Stop this. Uh, okay. So with that, the, <laughs> so the second question that I wanted to ask, which was goes the complete opposite direction, but you brought it up a little bit. You brought up karate and swimming was how did you get into how did you get into sports or which sport was first? Yeah. Great question. Um, <laughs> I asked him. That's why I'm the host. I, I, yeah. I have to think about this for a second. I mean, um, 
I guess theoretically, theoretically swimming, because like the first thing my mother would do is take me with her to the JCC while she would go swimming, and I would I would uh, come with her. I spent actually a very large majority of my teenage life going to the JCC like all the time. Um, so I like even had my first jobs there and all that other stuff. And um, I remembered, um, yeah, that I would I would I would just start swimming along. I did some courses, that kind of thing. And around like, I think six, six or so I was, uh, I was in karate. So it was like between like six and 10 or six and 11 or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, karate was, was quite interesting. Cause the, I think the first thing I remembered is that, um, my mother brought me there cause I needed to have a lot of discipline. So I was a wild kid. And, uh, every time I would do something, you know, bad, you know, there was, uh, uh, master Mark, um, he, he unfortunately passed away a few years ago from cancer, but he, uh, yeah, I remember uh, he would take, he had a stick, um, that was like in the shape of like a, it was like a bamboo stick that was, uh, like a swordish kind of thing. And if mm-hmm. I would misbehave, I would have to go in a push up stance and he would hit me in the back, whack me in the back with it. <laughs> so I think today that's probably not allowed anymore. Yeah. But, uh, us Gen Xers went through some traumatic fucking shit growing up with discipline. There are a lot of things, both in the home and out of the home, that right now would not fly too well. But you know, that's Probably why not. that's why that's why we're the elite generation. No one can fuck with us. Right, right, right. We had everything bad that happened to happen, right? So yep. um but yeah, I remember I remember, you know, in that sit up position and you just give a little bit of a whack and it would be, you know, if if I would break a rule or something like really badly, then you know, where I would misbehave at school, I knew it was coming. So eventually um that that kind of really helped shape me up a little bit. Um I was still a wild one. Um so like at some point or another, uh got into a few fights that I remembered and uh you know, l- little things like this where I was just kind of like an out of control kid just because it was like kind of my, my personality at the time. Um, also at some point or another, like, you know, I was, I was diagnosed as being learning disabled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and funny enough is, is that like most of it came because like, you know, first they said I had AD, ADD or ADHD. They couldn't really figure out which is which, uh, but my mother never put me on pills. Thank God. Never wanted to be on anything like that. Um, and it turns out like on my right ear, I'm deaf. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people thought I would never pay attention because like, you know, I wasn't listening, but it turned out I was literally deaf and not hearing them. So, um, it was something where I felt a little bit victimized in this sense, if you will, um, where, you know, you, you just be, be because of a disability that you have that, um, you know, people could use that kind of against you. So it was something which I, I mean, even, even today, you know, when people tell me now, uh, stuff, like when I'm in, I'm in Germany now. So when people tell me like uh, something in, in German and I don't hear them like properly, they'll then repeat it in English and I'll go back and I'll be like, no, 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 look, I understood what you said or generally can understand what you say, but I literally just don't hear you. So can you repeat it and, and do it a different way? Back then I didn't have the guts to do that. Um, I was a bit, I, I don't want to use the term naive, but I was a bit like hesitant because the way people would accept me, they'd be like, okay, why is this guy, um, you know, he's, he's, he's got this, this Jewish Muslim thing going on. He's, he's, he's crazy. He's all over the place. He's, um, not listening, all that stuff. So what, what is, what is going on with this kid? And I think the combination of all this stuff made a very, it kind of created like this little bit of a storm, if you will, so that it made it more difficult to blend in with, with most other kids. And that made it hard to, to have, um, a lot of good friends. 
Um, I had actually um, fewer friends, but a lot of like, like those fewer friends were good friends, which was mm-hmm. good. And um, even to this day, you know, it's kind of interesting. One of, one of them, uh, my, my, one of my best buddies, uh, Scott, um, he's now like, you know, we were both kind of pushed into the corner that we'd both be nothing. And now he's like pretty, pretty well-known um, psychologist and like has his, has his own po- uh, podcast and does all this other crazy stuff. has been on, been on uh, uh, doing interviews with like Oprah and stuff. And we were the rejects of the class. Right. So, so this is everyone that uh, kind of bucketed us in a different way. And um, I think that having, having those hardships and having those things to kind of deal with makes it, um, it creates like this uphill battle that gives you something that you want to prove. Right. And when you, it, it kind of just, it makes you better. It makes you stronger. And, and that's something which I think is kind of important when you kind of want to go about the world in a different way. Yeah. yeah. So how did we get from swimming to rowing or because I, because in uni, in college, you were both a swimmer and a rower and a freaking crazy cyclist. But mm. at, did you do, how did you get into rowing? Okay. Let's just put it that way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so we know you got into swimming from mom taking to the JCC from like a young kid and taking lessons there and stuff. How do we get into mm. rowing? And then we're going to go into high school with the two of them and all that. Yes. How'd you get into rowing? Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I can, I can start actually this part with the swimming part anyway, but, um, at a certain point, um, my swimming was not getting any better. I started to recognize that I was burning out a little bit. And, uh, when I was, when I was way younger, I was actually extremely competitive. Like I would say, you know, very, very strong, um, and got to a point where things kind of flatlined since I was, um, so the stories were is like, you know, I swam, uh, first at Foxcatcher, which you probably heard of John DuPont, uh, which mm-hmm. was kind of an interesting thing. So, so that was a funny story. My, um, I actually got kicked off of his property personally because of my dad going fishing on his property. That was actually just before the Schultz shooting, but that's another story. <laughs> um, then, um, we switched over to another club in St. Joe's University called Hawk Hill, which then our teams all, everyone split up. And then I went to a, another swim club called uh, PDR, the Philadelphia Department of Recreation. And, and who was your actually, and who was your teammate there? Uh, uh, so there okay. was quite a few. Oh, oh wait, <laughs> I'll so, let you yeah, get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so from the from the um, the swim club was actually set up with um, uh, by a guy named uh, Jim Ellis, who still runs it today. Um, he actually had a movie uh, where Terrence Howard played his character. It was called Pride. Right. I don't know if it, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was the name of the movie. It's called Pride. And um, Jim was was really, really awesome because he, you know, taught you about, like, you know, attitude is everything and, like, really, like, understanding, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, there were other interesting people. So um, we, we've had – we have visited – I remember one time Bill Cosby came around. That was kind of interesting. Um, but one of my um, teammates uh, was, was uh, Kevin Hart. Um, so I got to swim with him, but we weren't, we weren't like best friends or anything, but like I saw him there and I think if he'd see me, he'd still recognize me, but we, yes, people, a, he's talking about the comedian, Kevin Hart. That was his swim teammate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we swam together, which was kind of cool. Um, but I think, you know, he was, he was actually quite interesting cause he was like, he was, I, I never believed really in like natural comedy until like I met, met him and he was a super duper, unbelievably funny. And 
I just never understood um, at the time when you would, when you'd speak with him, like you know, some of the Trump problems he was having at home. Like I never knew about like you know stuff with like his dad or, or other things. Um, but he was a he was a genuine guy, and um, so at least like you know he's someone who I, I could walk off on a handshake and say, cool, you know. Yeah. Um, person, but we were never best friends. We never even like hung out. Like I think as a swim team, we 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 did uh, like once or something. But yeah. um, you know, that's that's what I remembered there. So anyway, from the from the swimming piece, um, after PDR, um, I was doing PDR um, and two other swim clubs, Lower Marion Aquatic Club with my coach there, Paul Spiker, and then a local YMCA. So I was swimming three three different swim teams back to back to back. It was triple training and sometimes four times a day. It was, it was insanity. Like it was, it was crazy. What reason? Yeah. Well, because I wanted to push myself. That was the whole thing. And I didn't understand periodization. I didn't understand rest, all the other stuff. So obviously at some point or another, it would add up to be too much. Um, you think? So, <laughs> <laughs> so, this is coming from me. Who's a functional workaholic. You think? Yeah. 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 That's where, that's where, well, I really enjoyed training, but racing at a certain point just became unattractive because it was just, I was just exhausted. And then my school grades would also suffer. Uh, I'd be completely done and everyone would be like, well, why is this kid not performing? And it was, no one traced it back to the fact that, oh yeah, he's coming in with zero, zero energy and just completely drained. And that was, that was basically where a lot of it came. Um, but after that, um, on my sophomore year of high school, um, I heard about some of my friends on the swim team who, after swimming, would go into rowing and Laura Marion just had a, um, a club, um, that they, they would row out of called bachelor's barge club, which is down at boathouse row in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was like, you know, my first foray into the sport and there I rode my, I remember stepping into a boat for the first time. And I, I remembered sitting on where you sit on either you do this thing called sweep rowing, which is one oar, or sculling, which is two oars. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the first year I did uh, sweep rowing and the first time I stepped into the boat, it was on the side that I wasn't used to, which was on my uh, port side. And I felt so disoriented that I actually got very scared of going into the water. Like I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, Oh crap. Okay. Am I really, is this really for me? And I actually literally thought, okay, maybe that was it. And um, later on, I think on the second day that we went on again, um, I went on the starboard side. So I was sitting on starboard in this big eight Mm -hmm. and um, all of a sudden it felt a lot more comfortable. So I recognized that, okay, you know, maybe I have to give myself a little bit of chance to catch up, see what's around me, understand the, the atmosphere a bit. Um, it was my first time uh, uh, really on the Schuylkill river, which is like, you know, you hear about like bodies being turned up or other. The sure kill as I called it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and, and all of these things together. And, um, that's just like, it was a completely different surreal experience. It's like experiencing like this kind of atmosphere. Mm. So um, it was also the first time that I had to work with others to be productive because mm. you're in a big boat, you're rowing. And if you don't follow the people in front of you and you don't do what they're doing, then it will go nowhere. Mm. So that was, that was a pretty amazing experience um, because like I've been doing individual sports my whole life. And going from like an individual sport um, to a team sport was like eye-opening and a lot of fun. Quick, two more questions. <laughs> One was 
switching sides maybe in part due to your hearing on your right side? Could very well be. I actually never thought about that. Um, yeah, because like the side that I'm good on is my, my left side. Left side. Uh, and, and hearing does, the doctors have mentioned, because um, now now there's apparently a surgery you can get for it, which, would, which the doctor actually told me that I would actually have a lot more disadvantages than advantages from it, mm. unless I'm completely deaf in my, my other ear. Um, because it affects your balance significantly. Mm-hmm. So that, that actually could be very true. Yeah. Yeah. Never thought of that. And then see, I think about these things. And then uh, the other question was, it's interesting that you said that going from individual sports to a team sport was eye-opening for you because also you ended up competing on the international front as a single scholar. Yeah. So yeah, how yeah. so how do we get back? So <laughs> How do we get from the where you, you were doing an eight man boat, right? Yeah, so I was I was in the eight, and then um, the following year um, I would do a double, which was then using uh, both oars, mm-hmm. um, and which is basically called sculling. And I did that with with my partner then uh, Eric, and we we actually did really well. Um, so like we ended up um, being one of the top boats around. We. Ended up getting, I think, our, our highest thing. There was a, a race called the Stotesbury Cup, which is a pretty big race for high schoolers in the U.S. Back then, we we took uh, bronze as uh, lightweights in in, in the uh, double nice. there, which was really fun. Yeah, it was it was it was really really quite interesting. Um, and this is your senior that, year because you started uh, in sophomore year. That was a, yeah, started on sophomore junior year. Took took bronze in one of the top races, <laughs> and, then, and then senior year, yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun. I mean. I'll admit that I was also still, I was very tough. Um, some of my, co- my, my teammates hated me, um, uh, because like I was very, um, I was very focused on, on pushing too hard and also, um, annoying people. So I was very, very good doing that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I definitely didn't have too many friends, I think back then. Um, and, and that's okay. I, you know, I was growing up and just a kid trying to figure stuff out. Right. And mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on. Um, also, you know, in high school, it was also interesting because um, everyone would always compare everything to like from a sports perspective. Um, Kobe Bryant went to my high school. Um, so to to watch him play, um, everyone would compare every athlete to him. <laughs> and he's one of the best athletes of all time. Uh, one of these guys. And every time I kept um, watching him and I, I used to play basketball with him um, at, at lunch, which was quite fun. And uh, still remember when I when I made the sinking hook shot. We we're playing playing. Um, it was a senior year, and he, he was he was getting drafted. And uh, um, I, I remember the, like I took this big nice hook shot and I actually made it in his face, and he got really pissed off. And it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was this game called Roughhouse. So I remember I remember he he literally cleared everything out, and there was probably like I think there was about. 12 or 14 of us and everyone cleared out of the way and it was Kobe and he, and, and I shoot the ball up because um, I get the foul line, like the foul shot or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he, he jumps up like over the rim to grab the ball and he goes, you and me right now. So everyone clears the lane. And after I made the hook shot on him and uh, <laughs> I, I, I go up to him and then I'm playing super hard defense. And, you know, I, I was really focusing and I stole the ball from him. He did not expect that. And I went back to the three-point line and I made another hook shot right in his face. <laughs> so I actually embarrassed him and he literally walked out and everyone was just going, oh. <laughs> sorry for laughing, but that is beautiful. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, 
yeah. Did you so just I, tell I, I me? Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me that in high school, in your senior year of high school, when he's about my, my his uh, his senior his, year junior my, my sophomore year it was my sophomore my sophomore year because he was two oh years this ahead. is even better that yeah. while you're a lonely sophomore who's a swimmer and just starting rowing who does these sports uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're playing basketball at lunch with Kobe you sink mm-hmm. a hook shot on him he calls you out because of course he's obviously <laughs> irritated by this yeah. You're one up on him. You're playing D. You steal the ball from him, reach the three-point line, and hit another hook shot from the three-point line in his... It was the ugliest basketball you'll ever see, but it worked. But it, <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's what happened. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. is a beautiful... That's a great story. Like, that's... Unfor- unfortunately, he passed away, of course. But... Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a story that you can live on in your legacy. Have you told Sammy and Laney this? <laughs> well, they, they, they don't even know what basketball really is. But like, you know, every time I think a bit about, um, I mean, it, it was as much as as much as it was to to watch like, you know, his his level and like always trying to have something to compare to. Um, I had great respect for the guy. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was really sad. Like every yeah. time I kind of think about the last few years and now that my kids are starting to understand um you know basketball and some other things mm. um you know i mean i wasn't i wasn't you know friends with them really like i you know I, i'd see him he'd know i was a fellow athlete kind yeah. of like hey how's it going kind of thing that was about it but i had friends of mine who played with him um and that was like you know it was really hard for those guys and it was just kind of like someone who was always there that you would benchmark yourself um mm. is always like gone and that, that was kind of, it's still surreal sometimes to think about it that way. But yeah, yeah. Um, but much respect to him, much respect to his family. Um, you know, it's really um, amazing to, to see some of his discipline. And even some of that like, resonated for me um, because that's what I took back then to, to my rowing, to my swimming. Um, and swimming, to be honest, like is really quite funny because my rowing got to a point where I was being recruited by the you know top universities in the in the U.S. Um, little did they know my grades were so bad that they wouldn't take me. <laughs> and yeah, that's another story altogether. What? What? Okay. Before you continue this story, hmm. in where Mark and I went to school in uni in Philly, so it's going to remain unnamed. <laughs> the you were a triple major and a quote-unquote varsity collegiate athlete champion. How are your grades going bad into school to get a swimmer swimming scholarship and triple major? Like this doesn't compute, does not equate. Yeah, it was like it, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um and you're so being I, I, sorry, sorry, sorry. And you're being recruited by the top universities to be a rower, but your grades aren't good enough. Come on, talk to me. Explain to me this. Ex- oh, explain yeah. explain to my people in the green room how this works <laughs> oh gee well where to start um so yeah like at some point or another i became one of the best uh, lightweight rowers in the u.s um for for high school rowers and um all the lightweight rowing takes place at like you know uh, ivy league schools and my grades were clearly not there 
Um, so it was very, very, very understandable. But um, there are other schools, uh, like, for example, like Rutgers University, which also had like a very competitive program. Um, I remember making the mistake of uh, there was, well, not really a mistake, but here's the story behind it. So I got recruited by them. Yeah. Um, by this, by this gentleman uh, um, there and a coach um, really convinced me. Like I, I, like I, I got along well with the team, got along well with, with everything. I love the facilities, everything. And I remember he's like, Mark, don't worry. You're going to get into the school. No problem. And he's like, just take this blue dot application, you know, like you'll have this, this application here for the school. They'll set you aside and you're in. Don't worry about it. Remember that. That was like as, as clear as day. And okay. it also happened, uh, funny enough to another, my, my former rowing partner uh, of mine, uh, Shane, um, that's actually how I met him is he was over at St. Joe's university and, um, from St. Joe's university, uh, sorry, St. Joe's prep, uh, yeah. preparatory school. He ended up also going to Rutgers and we both were told the same thing. Um, I, I had no idea about what his grades were, but mine definitely were not a par. Like, you know, yeah. it was a very, very <laughs> on average, like very bad uh, student per se. So um, applied to the school, um, thought everything would be, um, you know, fine, whatever it might be. And um, it turns out like around March or April, when everyone's finding out where they're getting in the school, I didn't hear back from them. So I was like, I, I, I called the coach up and I said, you know, Rob, what's what's going on? Like, you, you know, you told me everything should be fine. And he goes, um, Mark, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but your, your grades are really bad. So you're <laughs> 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 like, into school here. And I was like, what? Like, you're telling me this now? Like, don't you think it would have been important to tell me like, you know, a little while ago? Um, so I ended up being, it was now like towards the end of, end of April, early May, roughly. And I had no university to go into. So all of a sudden I'm in panic mode because my mother is also going like, oh my gosh, like we, we, we thought your foot was in the door on this. They promised you this. And then all of a sudden, and this was Rutgers university that, uh, you were going to get in all gone. So, um, we started looking at schools and, you know, our, the university, which shall not be named. Are you <laughs> telling me that we met by a mistake? And that's why in the residential living office, you came in and cause you didn't have a housing assignment that I fixed that for you. You did. <laughs> what? <laughs> are, you, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, I, have, so- I have known you for 25 years now. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. by chance, by freaking chance. So I was working in the residential living office as part of my, as part of one of my student, student work, work study programs or something. I don't know. And Mark comes in in the summer. Like we're off on the summer. We start, we start in like late September and he just bikes in on like in his like training gear and stuff. And he's like, Hey, I need a room. I'm like, uh, we sort of start school in a month how are you just <laughs> but from there we met and i was orientation and stuff but are you kidding me you we actually almost never met yeah but i'm actually glad that your grades sucked too much to get into rutgers and you had to go to the other school but how then did you become a triple major yeah if, it, and, it, and, and, and 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 a conference champion athlete at the same time if you sucked at school yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, you're given the underdog card. Um, and, and from my viewpoint, like I came into school and um, I was really, really, I was mad. 
like about like what happened with me over at Rutgers. Um, I was mad about like, you know, kind of being misled. I kind of looked at where everyone else was going. I think part of the problem I had is I was focusing too much on everyone else rather than myself. And I got Mm. lost. Right. Um, So eventually, you know, I came in, I came into Drexel and the reason I got in was actually not because of rowing, but because of swimming. Right. So without swimming, I would have, wouldn't have had a chance. So um, I was recruited back then by a coach, uh, Bruce Bronson is his name. Yep. And um, basically um, he took me onto the team. I got a, I basically got a full ride for the school, still had to pay the dorms, but still it was, it was definitely way more than I could have ever hoped for. So it was, yeah. it was really good in that sense. But how did you get and, recruited? But how did Bruce find you from swimming? If you were focusing on being recruited by rowing? So that, that's a, that's a great point. Like my, my, uh, high school coach, uh, Paul Spiker, um, gave a few calls and actually, uh, talked me up like really well and said, Hey, look, I have this guy. He's got a lot of potential and the sport, which I actually thought I was retiring from in high school. Um, cause I remembered, um, my state championships or rather my district championships. I didn't even qualify for states because our district was so strong. We actually had, um, there's a guy by the name of Brendan Hansen I used to have to re- race against, and Brendan was a world record holder and Olympic champion. He actually swam with Michael Phelps, mm. and I had to race against you know guys of Olympic caliber to to extremely like you know very high national caliber, and I was just under you know national level, and that made it extremely difficult in our district. If I went to any other district out there, probably would have been easy to qualify for the state championships. Mm-hmm. Didn't even get there. So after my district championships, were before I would start into rowing. I I remember tearing up. It was the last time I cried for a very long time. And I was like, okay, my rowing, my swimming career is over. Um, I gave it my all. And um, remember, I remember telling Paul, like, you know, I, I feel like I kind of let you down. Um, and he said, you know, don't like, you know, there's, there's always going to be a future for you. And then, you know, he actually helped me uh, get my foot into the next place. It was actually because of my swim coach on that. Right. This is yeah. the most insane story that i'm hearing because you held how many records at drexel i I had i had a a few um, (laughs) but they were like they were like top five i I would say like from from the actual number one standing was not number one but so was was up there as one of the best swimmers yeah for a while yeah yeah and you and you went on to be a conference champion swimmer America East, yeah, yeah, won that a few times. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> do, do do you hear this? Like, literally, are you hearing? Like, it's <laughs> this is mind-boggling to me. So, I have a question for you as a swimmer mm-hmm. and being deaf in your right ear, because one of your events was the four hundred IM, right. Yeah. How did that work? Be- for for those that don't know swimming, a 400 IM is uh you do all four uh you do f- uh free breast butterfly and back. And it's what like 26 laps or something like that or it, yeah, it's a fly back breast free and it's uh 16 16 laps total. 16 laps. Yeah. So yeah. with this, you know, everybody's yelling, teammates are yelling out like stroke, blah, blah, blah. How did, how did that affect you being in the water and li- were you listening for cues? Was it something that you 
that you're that you went with uh coach bronson and the teammates like you you like there's a special shout that you could hear out of everything else when you came up like how did that work communicating during that or was it just pure you just going dolphin aqua boy on everybody (laughs) well i mean it was like it was like a um funny enough is is that swimming what was really interesting is i could hear nothing um with my ears in the water Mm-hmm. Um, it was very seldom that I could hear anything. Um, outside of, you know, swimming is not the most exciting sport unless there's like a huge group of crowd of people or something and people are yelling and you could hear something maybe. But most of the time it was like when you're training, it was just you and your mind and, and focusing on just, you know, powering through and trucking through and getting, you know, things kind of, you know, from a technical perspective, um, through for the practice or for, for the, for the race. And, um, I remembered that the the bigger thing would be is I remember I had problems with uh, breathing control for a little while. I think I used to get super nervous and would I had like a hyperventilating scenario once or twice, which was kind of scary. I also had that when I was super younger, as uh, because I wasn't used to it from like super cold water or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And that was something which the the silence had me focus on, so that I would focus on the right things. Mm. So at least like. The good thing with swimming was is that it was a place I could get away from if I needed to have absolute quiet. And I never recognized this until much later that having kind of, um, you know, I've had I had a situation where I was on an airplane, my ear filled up when I was deaf for three days, and I recognized actually that it felt like I was swimming again. Like this, I was mm-hmm. sitting and I was walking around. I'd be outside, and I thought. Actually, being deaf isn't so bad. <laughs> like being completely <laughs> deaf, I was—I actually enjoyed it to some extent because it was like I really, I really had a, a taste of of what it will be like. Because eventually, maybe that'll happen, or you know, I'll have whatever other surgeries have whatever fixed. But um, having having kind of that um, that feeling there was something which um, which kind of helped put my mind in a proper mindset um, to to kind of think about things in a different way and. I think that kind of stuff made me think about, you know, certain events, certain things, whatever it might be, so that um, I could, you know, now now that kind of mindset helps me, you know, invent new stuff at the company I'm, I'm working for. So I'm working for one of the largest car companies in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've got like, you know, close to 40 patent filings. You know, I'm an inventor. I'm a kid who is like out of, out of nowhere. Um who pretty much like, you know, was learning disabled, put into the bottom of the bucket and out, out of nowhere, like I've learned to bring out like this, this, this mindset of creativity. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I've kind of found my place in a way, which requires a bit of silence or a bit of focus. And it just, just comes, to me, you know. Interesting. That's nice. It's, it's turning, turning a, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a handicap, but turning a what could be seen as a hindrance mm-hmm. into a uh not a projector, but something that projects you forward. Something that can add fuel to you that actually helps you progress forward instead of hindering you back. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's 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 sort of it's sort of like that. Um I think it's maybe you know, I finally learned to adapt and accept what I was, what mm. I had. And um, that acceptance was extremely crucial to understand, like, okay, I need to really know what I have. I can't be embarrassed of what I am. Um, that leaks back into my 
my experiences I have with, with rowing, right? Right. Um, where the stuff I had to go through in, in that scenario was life-changing, was altering, was, was, you know, going through some really crazy times and understanding that these accepting you for who you are is like your first step towards learning how to really use the tool set that you have. So spot on, Bob, once you live in your truth, there's nothing anyone can say or do that hinders you because you are focused on you. Well, <laughs> yeah, that, it, it, you know, that's one of the going back to what we're talking about with people not <clears throat> not making the decision. It's a lot of times easier. It's a lot of times harder for people to actually make that realization for themselves that, you know what, once I live for myself, yeah. nothing else matters. But once you do, there is literally no turning back. I can't tell you how many times I'm just like, wow, I didn't think I could give any less <laughs> in my life. But every day I'm like, nope, I don't. F you, screw you. I'm a do me. Like it or love it. Hate it or love it. I don't care. It's me. <laughs> and, and it's, and you know, it's, it's a confidence thing. It's not, it's not a conceited or cocky thing. And a lot of people mm-hmm. misplace that. They're like, no, mm-hmm. I just know myself enough that you don't, not that you don't matter to me, but your opinions don't matter to me. And mm-hmm. you're going to try and play that off as conceit because it makes you feel better about your insecurities. Not about how much I feel good about myself. You want to bring me down because you're so low on yourself. Nah, bro, we're not doing that anymore. I love myself and all of me. You hate you forever you want. We can coexist, but you're not infiltrating my mindset anymore. No, no. Mm, 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 mm. Yep. And I definitely, I definitely uh, learned some of that actually from you back in the day from my university days. <laughs> and here we are still together. Look at that. <laughs> so now that we have thought we were retiring from swimming and going to rowing, but then rowing didn't happen. So we climbed back up the, we, we, we didn't climb back up. We salmon laddered the shit out of swimming into the into championship level. Mm-hmm. How do we transition after uni back into rowing on a world championship level? Were you still training during your off season, which you don't have an off season in college, like you're still training. So how, yeah, well, sort of. So uh, swimming was funny enough about six months of the year. And every, I knew that with rowing, like there was something special there. And for me to just kind of walk away from that would be a big mistake. So I went from um, swimming in, in my freshman year to every summer I would, I would row. So actually after around April, um, I would row up until like, you know, so I'd have to swim again. So it'd be like from April to, to September. And during that time, um, I would just, um, let's say, flip-flop back and forth um, from, from each type of training. And uh, each year, actually, with rowing, I progressed in the club system first and uh, started with rowing in a, in a single. And I actually became like one of the top uh, intermediate rowers in the U.S. Um, pretty, pretty quickly. Then um, won some, started to win some races uh, locally, like the Independence Day Regatta, and started winning races in Canada, which was the Canadian Henley. And all of this was done while I was still swimming. So I was swimming uh, in, in in college during that time. And then I would go from swimming to, to the rowing. And I just compete. Um, and I, I love to train. And I love to compete with people. And um, the way things really progressed and made, the way it worked was that like I, I did it in increments. It was mm-hmm. like I started... 
um, baby steps and realized that if I, if I focused maybe too much like I did prior, I could either burn out or wouldn't be the right thing for me because I realized I needed to have that kind of split. Oh, did you learn um, from being a kid? <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, surprisingly, right? Um, and um, so I think like from, from, from the sports perspective, like I, I was over at uh, Bachelor's uh, Barber Club. I was being coached by a guy named Harold Finnegan. Awesome guy. I actually just saw him last year and his family is doing great. And um, after that point, he basically said, okay, I don't really have time to coach you anymore, like within his own kind of way, or we just didn't really find our, our way to kind of uh, to train together anymore. So I, I left Bachelor's Barge Club and I joined Malta Boat Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was at Malta, um, I, I recognized the club because uh, first they were um, known for their lightweight men's program. Um, there were a lot of guys who I was, the guys who actually beat me were in the club. So I said, okay, if I want to compete with the guys who are beating me and get as fast or better than them, I've got to join them. Um, so that, that turned out to be kind of like a pretty good way to, to, to get things going. If you can't and, beat them, uh, join them. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was my first exposure towards also getting to, to meet athletes that were, you know, at the Pan Am games mm-hmm. or you know, national champions and stuff like that. And uh, eventually some national team members and stuff as well. And that, that for me was really interesting because, you know, I looked at where they were and I looked at where I was and I didn't think I was really that far away. And um, over time, continued to, to train with these guys. And I remember the first few years, the, the, there was a new group that was there that was not all that uh, competitive at the, at the beginning and over time, uh, the group that I was, I was pretty far ahead started catching up to me. And then at some point, some of the guys actually surpassed me for a bit. And then I mm. had to come back and get there. So they got really good. <clears throat> and um, eventually, um, you know, with enough training, um, we were training in, we decided to row a, a lightweight uh, quad, quadruple skull, which is four people in a boat. Mm-hmm. Um, we're twice or th- like two or three times uh, second place at the national team trials going at some pretty fast speeds and we still didn't qualify because we were like, you know, less than a second behind. Um, I mean, we we're really, really close to making the U S teams. Mm. Um, so I recognize that from my, my viewpoint, I was a very, very strong guy for, for team boats. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was not really much of a single scholar. Um, and that took some time to get used to. Um, it wasn't until I started, uh, my, my swimming career actually ended um, with, with, with Drexel, um, in, uh, 2002 that I, that I went to, to train rowing full-time and within like about that year or the year afterwards, I took a major, major leap where, um, they had these national sele- selection regattas and I won the B final, but I was close to getting into the A final just, you know, luck of the draw, but mm-hmm. it was good enough to be one of the top rowers in the United States. Um, so I did get to compete against guys that ended up going to Ivy League schools and all the other stuff <laughs> that I, I wasn't cool enough to be in. Um, and uh, eventually um, was able to compete with them, and I became one of the best U.S. lightweight single scholars. So how do we get from being second in the second in the national uh, qualifiers with the four man boat to deciding to do singles. Because if you're doing so well with the, with the four team, 
what would make your mind go, you know what, let me do this on my own? Yeah, it's a good, well, usually at the beginning of the, of the years, they have like these national selection races. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what um, U.S. rowing at the time established for like you to, to, to join in and, and compete. And you had to do them in singles. So uh-huh. okay. they to be in the single. And at that point, it was like um, a good way to, um, to kind of test your speed against the, the best guys in the country. So mm-hmm. th- that's how we did it, right? Um, the U.S. system, however, is like it's, it's strong, but when you compare it to like what goes on in overseas and in Europe is like still, you know, it's the U.S. is a, is a decent player, but the, the better players were in Europe at the time. You know, mm-hmm. if you wanted to be the right. best. So, um, yeah, like from like, I would say like at some point I evolved to, to being, um, you know, a, you know, a big fish in a big pond, but there's a bigger pond out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was, that was something which I think over time from the whole evolution of the entire experience is how I, you know, carried on to, to, to focusing on, on singles. And I also did the lightweight double, uh, the lightweight double, um, I did with my partner at the time, Shane, um, it was the same chain that was uh, funny enough over at the Rutgers uh, scenario. <laughs> uh, so that, that, that was funny. We, we were both uh, at national team trials. Uh, I remember, and we ran into the same coach who uh, uh, Rob, who told us that um, he, uh, he was like, wow, you were amazing. You know, you can now come and row for us. And I'm like, what, what dude, like, <laughs> what you, about? like you, you, you ditched me and left me in my situation before you think I'm going to come to you now. No chance. There's no loyalty right. in that. Um, so, so, uh, Shane and I, we eventually stuck with a double. We won a lot of, uh, races. Mm. Uh, and we actually went in the, uh, 2004 Olympic trials where we, we raced, uh, in like the heavyweight doubles. And then we decided to kind of part our ways after I made some other decisions, uh, onward. So, but, um, yeah, it was kind of, kind of an interesting time, um, I would say. And, um, you know, just competing, competing as being one of the best in the U S like, you know, I didn't go around and tell people that I was just like, I knew what it was. The results are there. Um, my, my teammates were my teammates. You know, I really, I really loved and got along with them. They were my best friends at the time. And, um, you know, I think a lot of through through that and a lot of self-discovery, you know, you kind of determine where things go in the future. And that's kind of how things change later for say. Right. So now we're, now we're competing in the single boat. We're on the national level in the U.S. Federation. How do we decide to compete for Palestine? <laughs> so <laughs> it's a, it's a it's <laughs> what's the laugh for? It sounds a, like another interesting a, story. I, I wish it was a straight story, but it's like <laughs> it's it, it kind of it's like this whole thing that evolves, and it's not mm-hmm. just one. Um, so. The funny thing is, is that like during my university time, um, my um, family started having some like, let's say things had changed. So back just, just before 9-11 occurred, mm-hmm. um, I was, I joined a Jewish fraternity. It was called uh, AE Pi, Alpha Epsilon Pi. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, a, I was, I was there um, and really didn't acknowledge very much of my my Muslim side at all at that point. In fact, actually I started to become a little bit like resenting it in a way. Mm. And also like, and that was just based on the fact that I was also surrounding myself by kind of the wrong people, if you will. So like a little bit of this ideology thing. 
And um, at the same time, my sisters, um, you know, they're raised Jewish, all the other stuff. They go to to Israel and they spend their summers there with my dad's family and they love it. They're having the times of their lives. And this is like when they're between 15 and 18. And uh, I remember distinctly, it was like August 30th, I think when they flew back, um, 2001, just before, you know, all the, the big stuff happened on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And my sisters came back wearing uh, headscarves, so hijabs. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that they ever wore that. And then they, you know, we were there born Jewish and came back converted to Islam. And for me, that was really, really, really hard because all of a sudden, um, you know, my sisters went from, you know, who I thought I knew they were to what they wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was, you know, if I look at it today I, and think about myself, um, then I would say, wow, it was pretty dumb. Um, cause I didn't accept my sisters for, for who they were at the time. And we had like, if you want to talk about all the jokes and all the other stuff, then it was like we had this internal uh, fighting against each other for quite some time. It was pretty intense then. And at that point, um, my sisters really uh, also went through a lot of trouble with like death threats and stuff like that after 9-11 occurred because a lot of people like mm. they legitimately had death threats that happened. And when my, my parents are telling me about all this stuff, because um, I, I limited my communication with them for a bit. I kind of was like, why, why is this happening? Like my, like at first I had a really hard time understanding and accepting my sisters. And then I started hearing from some of my fraternity brothers, some rhetoric um, about, you know, Al Qaeda and how they're related to Palestinians and all this other stuff and how Palestinians are all this crazy stuff. And I started thinking to myself like, okay, but I know what my sisters are going through and we're that, and that's not true. And there was that moment in my mind where something clicked. And that was something for me where I recognized that I started to think a little bit wrong. Mm. So that was a, that was a really tough thing because at that point, um, you know, you're, you're a kid, you're on top of the world. You want to, you never want to be wrong, but I knew I was wrong. So I went back, um, after having some other strange discussions with my fraternity brothers, I just realized, okay, this is not really the the place to be. There's some people who are absolutely really cool. I'm still friends with some of those guys to this day. And there are others, which unfortunately are very, very, you know, extreme. Um, I would say like from a political point of view, having nothing to do with, you know, their religious background, because that doesn't matter to me. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty much like if someone hates me for being me, then that's, that's, that's it. What doing, right. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I spoke with my sisters and I apologized to them. And I recognized that I was, I was wrong, like big time, and that I needed to learn more about myself. Mm. And that's where I started understanding and reconnecting with that side of, of my life. And so my, my dad and I started having some pretty intense discussions. And my dad beforehand from that point of view, we never talked politics. We never talked any, like really anything too in detail, but it came to the point in my life where that was kind of like really important to understand. And so we started having exchanges. Um, and it, it, like, it started from like 2001 through 2003, roughly really where I really started to understand um, my Palestinian heritage. 
Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, I started reading up more, understanding more about news sources, checking multiple sources, seeing all this stuff, and understanding the world has more than just one view. And that's where um, I started to take a look at what was happening with uh, Palestine. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until um, 2004, after that Olympic trials um, that I did with, with Shane, my partner at the time, that um, we, you know, I started, I, I recognized, okay, um, I got to do something a little bit different because, you know, by this point, I should have probably already made a national team. I am good enough. There's other people who are better, who, who I was better with, who I did, who I was just not in the right place at the right time. And they made like bigger, you know, lightweight eights or other, other boats that were, I don't want to say easier to get into, but they mm-hmm. were sort of easier to get into in that sense. And they were winning medals at world championships and I wasn't. So I recognized, okay, maybe something's wrong, but let's see. And it just so happens that I started also my, my first job um, at, uh, at Cigna at the time. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I was, I was working diligently when I uh, was on the World Rowing website. And uh, I took a look and I saw that there was a, a rowing competition in Gaza. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's pretty interesting. So um, they actually had contact information for the people who were uh, organizing it. And I, I literally contacted them just because I was, I was interested in like donating some money because I was working at that point and, um, you know, just helping because I thought it was kind of a good cause. Mm-hmm. And the president of the Federation um, reaches back out and um, he's like, you know, tell me a little bit about you. Like, what's your story? And I sent him over some information. I'm like, here's a picture of me racing. You know, it's kind of like fun. Like maybe it's interesting for people to see there. And he's like, you know, would you, would you consider rowing for us? You're actually pretty good. (laughs) And I was was like, my my first honest answer was no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I I was, I'm I'm happy for where I am. Mm -hmm. And, um, it just kind of like, it was something that kind of stuck with me. And I brought it back to my, my parents and I spoke with my dad really about it. And I said, like, would this seriously mean anything for you guys? Um, and my dad looks at me and he goes like that, that would be the world to the village that, that, that puts them on the map, like uh-huh. in, in a positive light, you know? And, um, that's where I started to really think, okay, if, if I would really do this, um, would it, would, would this make sense? And, and so it was, all, it was like over a year's process. I spoke with like the Federation and, um, I also spoke with my, my, my teammates over at Malta and, um, it was actually kind of surprising because that's the first time in my life that I started to also recognize what, like how, how two-sided people really could be. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was kind of like, it was kind of shocking because like, I explained to them, look, I was living at the club at the time. So for, from their point of view, I was living in training so I could make a U.S. national team. As soon as I decided to uh, compete um, for Palestine or even consider it, they were like, look, um, if you do that, then, you know, you may have to think about moving somewhere else, um, you know, because I was living out of the club. Mm-hmm. Um, I had lunches with the the club uh, president who I, who I saw as really like a mentor for years. And he was like, if you would pick Palestine to, to go row for them, that's like you choosing to go to war for them against the United States. That's the kind of comparison that I had. 
the fuck? Yeah. So, so I kind of, I, I remember it very, very high up uh, guy over at, uh, at a uh, big bank in the U.S. And I, I just told him like, look, um, let me, let me think about this. But like, this is, this is a lot bigger than, than, than you or me for my opinion. And Good on you. Finally, when, when I went through that whole decision, you know, I was, I was talking about it regularly with my, 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 uh, running partner Shane at the time. And Shane was actually from that, from, at the beginning was, was supportive. Um, but as over time, as he saw it actually may come true, because we were both partners who we were trained to go for, yeah. for a national team. He eventually did make a team and we'll chat about that in a bit. But like he eventually went from like this, okay, you know, he's, he's, he may go for it to all of a sudden hearing what the other guys are doing and empathizing with them and all of a sudden started shutting me out. And so I started seeing that like people recognized I was probably going to go in this direction and they were pushing me that way. And when I finally made my decision to do it, like it was like all hell broke loose. Like all of a sudden I had uh, the club um, asking me about like my affiliations with like, you know, going to Gaza and um, if I have to go train in Palestine and do I have, you, you have to be very careful because those are very well known, you know, uh, dangerous areas. There could be terrorists, like stuff like this. And I was kind of going like, I'm, just rowing a boat, you know, I'm just rowing. Um, and it was, it got to, it got to some really crazy stuff and those discussions escalated. And then I would have like, you know, I still have emails from like 20 some years ago. I saved and printed out. Cause when I look at them, I just go, wow. Like how could this seriously be that I went through this? Cause like now when I read this today, I'm like, wow, this is, this is actually like discriminatory. That's, that's nice. You know, it's interesting to see. Um, I wouldn't people, say nice is a word I would use for it, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, let's put it this way. Um, when you're the only guy who knows about a situation and you're dealing with a whole group of people who are thinking completely wrong way, it helps to have something later to reassure that you were doing the right thing. And, yeah. and that, that's, that's what I mean from, from, from nice for me. So yeah. like, that, okay. that is, I stood my ground for that. Right. Good. So, um, Eventually got kicked out of the club. Um, I had to change over to another club and my um, affiliation with the club and racing or doing anything with them was really, really, let's say problematic. People were like, you know, you can't race locally anymore. So like the local, uh, the Schuylkill Navy at the time, I remembered that I was, I was not allowed to compete um, because I wasn't allowed to represent uh, the club that I was in for some specific races I think later, if I was able to to join and work with some other clubs, I probably could have. But at least, like, while I was associated with Malta, um, I was banned because the club wouldn't allow me to compete with them. And they were like, well, you're not also uh, rowing for the United States. So I was like, okay, great. Um, my The Palestinian Rowing Federation um, helped me through with a lot of it. So there was there was uh, two gentlemen. They, they like to say anonymous, so I won't mention them for yep, now. No, we're good. But, but in general, like they, they really helped me with a lot of stuff. And, um, the one of them was, is actually a German guy. And he basically said, look, like what, what they're doing is not right for you. And we, we actually filed a grievance with us rowing, um, the, the national rowing body. And, um, we, we could have pursued it further, but at a certain point we just didn't pursue it because it wasn't worth it. Um, just because like, it would, what would that mean for my rowing career? What would that mean for, for, for a lot of stuff at that point? And they said, Mark, instead of you going through all this trouble, and I still have all the documentation of the whole thing. If I ever wanted to go back and say, Hey, us rowing, by the way, we should file still a grievance about some bad stuff from years ago. 
Um, well, um, they set me up to, to train in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so when I decided to row for Palestine, um, I basically decided to quit my job. I was working in, it, it, I, had a, I had a nice job over at uh, Signet Group Insurance, working down in, in, in downtown center city, Philadelphia. I had a perfect setup of everything. And I was going from basically being in Philadelphia, Canada, maybe Israel for my whole life to all of a sudden jumping out to the middle of nowhere in Germany uh, to, to train and, and be on my own. And didn't speak German. Not one word. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, once once I came out here, uh, you know, I came out here uh, first with a smaller group. Um, there were two other uh, people who tried to, to, you know, they competed as well for Palestine mm-hmm. uh, on the under twenty three circuit. Um, but I was the very first for the for the the senior, the real like the world championships, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was such an eye opening experience because when I came out to Germany, uh, it was dealing with. Um, not really people who were, uh, you know, I don't want to say that. Like they were, they were, they were unbelievably supportive. Mm-hmm. Like I was super shocked to see. Are you sure? I mean, I'm not racing for Germany. You know, like is that going to be a problem for you guys? Because in the U.S. it would be. They were like, why would that be a problem? No one, no one cared. They, they were literally there. Like, oh, you're doing sports. Mm-hmm. It was like you're rowing for Palestine. How cool! How can I help you? All of a sudden, doors open and people were like. Let me get you a boat. You need equipment. You need this, that. All that was there, right? You know, this goes back to that political conversation that we skirted having earlier. But a lot of that strife that you were getting is that political ties to the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict, which stems from the U.S. But again, that's a conversation for another episode. <laughs> Continue in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, in Germany, it was quite interesting. Um, so I, I was coached, um, originally I was in a place outside of Frankfurt called Marburg for a few months. Mm-hmm. And, um, the coach there recognized that I, I was, uh, not just from the rowing perspective, but look, took a look at me and said that, okay, you're, you're psychologically, psychologically damaged. <laughs> like I, I was beaten up. Um, it felt like, Almost everyone, you not being included, you know, which was which was fantastic. You supported me, um, but there were a ton of other people that turned their back on me. And all of a sudden, like you know, if I would see them at like an international race, um, they would not want to have anything to do with me, or they'd be very hesitant. They'd be like, "Oh, that's the guy who changed countries, or this or that." And it was kind of like it was kind of really, you know, it was hurtful in a sense. And that was something, at least for that two thousand five year. I had a really hard time adjusting um, because it was like going, changing everything. And even then I was only, I only knew that I was going to be in Germany at that time from basically that June till uh, like the end of, end of August. And after that training camp, I came back to Philadelphia and had to figure stuff out. I didn't know what I was going to do. And it's just by chance that that, um, in, I'd like to say around like October after I was staying at home and doing a little bit of training here or there, um, out of the new club I joined later, Undyne Barge Club, who was very, who was actually very supportive in the sense that they didn't discriminate against me, which was nice. Um, like they, uh, um, I, I was able to train there, and the Palestinian Rowing Federation calls me and says, "Hey, uh, Mark, uh, would you be interested in rowing in India for the Asian Nationals?" And I was like, 
yeah, sure, why not? They're like, okay, in two weeks, you're flying out to... to <laughs> Good, glad you answered. So pack your bags, you're leaving. <laughs> so I, I, had, I was trying to be like, well, I'm looking for a job. I'm trying to figure everything out, all this other stuff. They're like, what, after you compete there, let's figure out this other piece. Mm. So I competed there. Um, I made the A-finals. Um, and unfortunately, during my A-finals, I caught a very bad... Um, bug and I was actually hospitalized for a few days. Um, so when I was in India, um, I got to compete. I was racing. I literally, um, thought the race was going to be like canceled for me because we couldn't arrange all my flights and everything. So I started eating everything I could. Cause I was like, well, I just had to, you know, suck weight to get my weight down to the right limit. And I bumped up to like, you had to be 72 and a half kilos. And I was like 78 at that point after I just ate everything. And I had to lose within 48 hours, so six kilos to get down to the to the right weight um, to compete, knowing that half of that time or more I was going to be on a plane. So that was a little bit difficult, but I, I managed to do some running back and forth with like and sweating stuff on a plane with people staring at me, going like, "What is this guy doing?" Um, which was, which this, is kind but of this also sounds like something you would do, just like in general, you would just pack, you would just pack up and start running anywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. Like, if you got to do it, you got to do it. So it's kind of like just focusing <laughs> on what needs to be done, get it done. It's all, it's all good. Um, went through this this exercise, made my weight, got to compete, actually beat uh, like a lot of people. And then I got to the A final and I actually had a legitimate meddling chance there. And um, yeah, then I got, I, I ended up uh, finding out later um, after I was in the hospital um, that uh, the, local uh well the water that they were supplying everyone from the water cooler was actually from a local well so i ended up uh getting really sick and it took me weeks really to recover but i was only in the hospital there for five days flew back into to the u.s uh stayed there for a bit and as i was there um that's where the federation said to me look mark um we know the trouble you went through everything you went through to to basically compete for us and we're going to do something back for you. How would you like to row full time? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, we got you a sponsor. Um, what would you, how would you like it if we got you to train in a, in a real training group for a year in Germany? So that was like all of a sudden this huge gift after <laughs> dealing with all this stuff in India. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, this is back in, uh, in, in 2005, and it was literally, I wasn't even thinking about it, but it was where I was almost, I was walking out of the U.S. and didn't realize I wouldn't be back. Yeah. So, well, not really back, back, like not living in Not living there, right. And that, that's actually how I ended up in Hamburg. And um, in Hamburg, I was training with my uh, um, my coach here, uh, Rita. She's, she's fantastic. Uh, one of the best technical coaches. She had a lot of people who uh, were national team members for Germany. Um, she had a few, a few people that were like in the Olympics. Um, I mean, it was really just a fantastic, uh, group. It couldn't be anything better. So I went from, you know, people who, who thought they were the best, uh, you know, in the U S mm-hmm. to now being the best people in the world and learning how they trained. And that, that was, that had a lot of growing pains in itself. I still had a lot of issues, let's say to kind of like, you know, like anger management, just like getting used to the fact that there's cultural differences. There's, you know, I was really very, very on my own. It was before even having smartphones and everything. So it was hard to get around, very isolated. Um, But I slowly learned to adapt. 
And that's something where the first, the first year, like in 2006, I admittedly say like, yeah, probably even the first few months I, I, you know, I had to really be convinced that the system would work because I didn't believe that like, the system that they were doing was, was really right and all that stuff. And I stuck with the group and I watched them. And then I saw the same group who I was completely not believing in. All of a sudden, these guys were winning and being the best in Germany and then winning and being the best in the world at like World Cup races and everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I just sat there. I remember at one of the World Cups in the bleachers with one of my, my teammates. And I was just sitting there going like, all right, I get it. And, and that was something where, like, from a world-class athlete point of view, I understood how they started to work. And instead of opening my mouth and being a bit of a, a, of a pain in the, ass, in the ass, if you will, mm-hmm. I started to understand more of what I needed to do to be a proper world-class athlete. So that was something that was, that was really eye-opening because you, you, you need to take time to reflect on, on what you have in front of you because like you won't recognize later that you know that was that that was your opportunity you need to take it then um so for me that, that was that was really eye opening um yeah so like after that point uh training continued uh world championships goes by um had some really you know crazy instances later that happened that I, I had to be mentally prepared for um we were at the world championships in Eton in 2006 um, where I placed, I think, 16th or 18th, which was still a fantastic result. Um, it was, you know, the, in the same race that I'm in, in my finals, there's guys who went to the Olympics, so it was the right level. And um, I uh, remembered seeing at that World Championships the U.S. teams there. And uh, my best friend at the time uh, was uh, was Shane, my old bull mm-hmm. partner. I remember seeing him. And he was walking with his his quad, and it was his quadruple skull. So he finally made the U.S. team, and he made it a few more times actually afterwards, which is good for him. And um, he, I said, "Hey, Shane!" First time I saw him in a long time, he looked over at me, and then he turned his head away and ignored me completely. And you know that that was super hard because like we both went through the same situation with Rutgers, mm. we went through the same situation with with you know at Drexel. Yeah. Um, we were both, um, you know, training together. We've got, we brought each other the same success. And then to go through that whole phase where like, we'd have serious chats about everything. Right. Um, and to go from that to, to that was really, really hard and hurtful. Um, and it was a bit, it was a bit callous, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then going from that piece to other political stuff that would happen that made me realize that I have to think bigger than just this, but you know, um, from a political perspective, um, when I was at the World Championships as well, um, an Israeli af- athlete uh, comes up to me at the World Championships, and um, he go- he comes to like we're it, it was just after the races were over and we were in a food tent with a lot of other athletes, and I remember like the Tunisian team and Egyptian team sitting right next to me on the left, watching me, and this guy from Israel comes up. I didn't even know who he was actually at the beginning until I until I really like took a look a little further. I'm like, oh, okay might be from Israel. And um, he reaches out and he shakes my hand. And um, he, he goes, Mark, you good. I'm like, thanks. You know, you're, you're not so bad yourself. Uh, I was actually thinking, okay, this is actually kind of the progress I was, you know, kind of thinking about. Maybe maybe something could happen. And he goes, no, 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 no. You good. 
Palestinian people bad. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, you can't be serious. Like, you know, there's not many, um, you know, there, there's, there's tons of people who are, who are good people. There's, there may be some bad people here or there, but we're all good people. Um, and he goes, I remember this at a world championship. He goes, there are one, two, maybe three, uh, good, uh, Palestinians, uh, or Palestinian people. Cause his English was not that good. Mm. And he takes a, he takes a gun pose and he goes, what? the rest, and he goes, the rest, we shoot them at a world championship. <laughs> so I remember that, that part kind of stuck with me and I realized, okay, um, you know, the shame thing sucked, but there's bigger things I got to be more, more concerned about. And, um, that was kind of eye opening and shocking. My federation heard about it. Um, one of the folks I had was, was livid. So like, of course they, they wanted to make a complaint with, with world rowing about it. Um, but we were instructed actually at the end by my sponsor not to do it. And the reason was, is that if I would do that, then my entire, everything would basically be done. So it was a very, very, very tight situation. Well, basically, the sponsor had a bit of a, of a different ulterior motive as to why I was sponsored, which was quite mm. interesting. Mm. So um, after that whole incident occurred, I, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised. Some other athletes heard about it. They thought it was all messed up, but they said, OK, life goes on. And so I do, too. Mm. Um, when I came back to the U.S. after that race, my, I was asked to go see my sponsor in, in Arizona. And, and I met with her really, really nice lady. And, um, you know, she basically explained to me the situation, like, look, like you definitely do not want to put yourself in a situation where you of all people are going to be a news story. And I was like, why? She's like, we first, aside from you being Jewish and Muslim, that doesn't bother me. That's not a big issue at all. The issue is, is that First, you you had an interaction with an Israeli athlete, which is a pretty big problem for us politically, because if if the problem that you have today, you have countries like Iran, Iraq, whoever, um, if they shake a hand of an Israeli athlete, you know, there's a guy that just happened to was a power lifter, and he was basically banned from competing again from his own country, um, quite simply because he shook his hand. So from my point of view, if any of that kind of interaction came through, and mine was definitely not the, the bad intention in that case, then that could have backfired heavily on me and I wouldn't be able to compete for the Olympics that year. I said, okay. And the other thing she said is, is, you know, Mark, the reason why we need to keep you specifically under the political radar is because of your father. And I'm like, my dad? Like, what, what's he have to do with any of this? And he's like, well, or she's like, she's like, well, um, whether you whether you like to think of it or not, you representing Palestine is a very big deal because the International Olympic Committee says that that's a big deal. And I said, okay, well, well, why is that? It's like your father is Israeli Arab. He was born, and he, he was born in Jerusalem, but he's he's from an Israeli Arab state. That means he's in Israel, and that's the acknowledgement by the International Olympic Committee that people in Israel who are Israeli Arabs are in fact Palestinian. That's why it's a very big deal that you stay under the radar. Because in fact, that if you, if they know that this is exactly what these, the International Olympic Committee actually declared by saying that I am allowed to compete as an, as an Israeli Arab, but also a Palestinian descent, 
um, then that could be considered problematic. So that was actually why, like from a pretty crazy, like political perspective, why I was, I had to be very careful from like a fine line as to what I did there. My blood is boiling. I know this story and my blood is still boiling again, (laughs) listening to it because you go back to what I said earlier about remove the money, move the power structure. All of this can be fucking resolved. Yeah. Like it is so absolutely frustrating that historically speaking, mm-hmm. Israel wasn't a country until 1960 when the U.S. fucking uh, funded it. But that's just going to throw it out there, and I'm going to be the unpopular person to fucking say that. And the fact that is perpetuated on that for you to be an Olympic Olympic athlete or a world champion athlete and the Olympics are about to let you win, that that political statement can destroy everything, which means nothing, which means that we're all fucking people. It literally means we're all people. And this conflict can be resolved because only thing conflict is from one side is people trying to say we're people like literally we're people. So why don't you recognize us as a people? Why is it so fucking hard for people? Sorry, I'm trying to keep my cool here, but I am, I, again, I know the story. I even helped Mark with the press release for Philadelphia Inquirer when he was going off and faced some backlash from that because of the intent, which I get as well. But still, it's just like the whole thing is just, why can't, why can't we just be people? Like, why? Why can we not just be people and recognize each other to be people? It's the same thing with the uh, uh, the Serbian uh, Albanian situation. It's the Syrian. It's the Syrian thing. It's the Cypriot Turkish thing. It's the like. Why do we allow this to perpetuate throughout time? It's Russia, Ukraine. And then, you know, years ago, the Russians were still allowed to compete in the Olympics because, but they weren't Russian. They were the Russian, uh, Olympic committee or something like that. But they were like the, the political games that are so far deep in the way that we interact personally and socially. Mm. It could all change like that. Literally like that by one person going, you know what? Fuck it all. This means nothing. But too many people, as you said, like a sponsor, have too many political ulterior motives of keeping the strife perpetuating for their benefit. Hate me if you want me. Hate me if you want to. Don't listen to my podcast ever again, but, or don't talk to me ever again. I don't care. Your loss, not mine. But that's the hard ass fucking truth that all of this shit is dumb as fuck. Don't care about my language right now. Don't care about my energy right now. Don't care about my attitude right now eat it because that's that's the base fucking truth of it all i mean it's it's the hardest thing to for for most other people who don't experience this to just understand it's as simple as that um mm-hmm. but coming down to a lot of scenarios like this is like really where where it comes to so i mean after all that happened um you know it, it kind of kept me focused till like you know i went for the olympics um i went for the uh, qualification race and made it to the semifinals. And then I, if I made it to the finals, I would have qualified uh, for the Asian qualifier. So long story short, really, 
Um, I uh, missed qualifying for the Olympics by um, just one one race. Um, you know, four years on the line, basically from from that. And um, still, you know, I I came out of the whole thing kind of um, completely completely changed because I, I had a completely different outlook and change on things just because mm-hmm. of these experiences that I don't think the average person would really go through. Um, and if they did, it's, it's, it's a really hard thing. Um, so it requires like a lot of, a lot of mistakes along the way, a lot of discipline and a lot of things just to understand that, you know, um, life is, is a lot more than just, you know, um, fighting or, or misinterpreting things. And that's, that's something which you just have to focus on the thing that you want to have, that you need to have mm-hmm. and then go for it. Um, so that was that was kind of a fun transition. Um, so going from like that scenario to 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 real life afterwards in Germany was a bit of a struggle. Um, mm-hmm. That took some time to kind of go from um, you know a rower, and that's it's a hard thing that a lot of athletes have to do is they go from like an athlete uh, career to a real career, and um, that transition took a lot of time. Like in Germany, I first started um, you know teaching English. And all this other stuff. When I started teaching English, um, you know, I could under, I, I learned a little bit of German, so I, I picked that up when I was working with like a lot of different businesses, and um, it made me realize when I was going through some of those scenarios that a lot of the stuff that people were doing in the office and complaining about were, you know, it's trivial yeah, in the grand scheme of things, right? Not that they're not that they're not warranted, because I don't want to discredit people for that stuff, but like. And there are probably scenarios that are pretty, pretty rough, but a lot of things are trivial. And, and when you go through like serious life altering discrimination or crazy situations that, that just kind of come up and pop on you, then you, you learn to manage things differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got lucky with that. Um, met my wife while I was out here. Now I've got two, two great kids. My niece and nephew, Sammy and Laney. Yeah. <laughs> And they're fantastic. So I'm having a lot of fun trying to teach them a bit more about, you know, kind of some of this stuff. And yeah, you know, I want them to know the truth about um, about everything that I've been through, um, and also understand that you know there's a lot more to life than just you know playing on an iPad all day or something like this. Yeah. I mean, they're kids. What kids do these days? Um, but that's still kind of something which um, which I'd say is kind of interesting. Um, going through all this, like it was, it was a bit of a struggle the first few years. But I recognize, like, going through real discriminatory scenarios, going through being completely in unfair situations, mm. pushed me to to really go for it. Yeah, and that's how I was able to, you know, establish a career here in Germany. Um, you know, write a book. Um, really about the whole entire piece, which is still like eventually I'm going to publish, which is kind of nice. Um, and we're, you know, then I, then of all things, what was really cool is that years later, one of the biggest things I wanted to do was inspire someone to take up the mantle at some point and, and be the next hero for Palestine. And um, back in 2015, there was a guy named uh, Amel uh, Jonas, and um, he reached out to me just on on social media on on, on Facebook. And was like, hey, look, um, this is this is. Uh, I, I really, you know, think what you did was amazing. I just want to let you know that, and I might want to do this one day. And I thought, okay, you know, thank you, very, very nice to get in touch. But I never thought of anything again that he would he would get back to me. And uh, 
lo and behold, a few years later, he did get back to me. And uh, he was growing in the U.S. and said, look, I want to row for Palestine. And um, I helped him kind of get everything on, on board, which was really nice. Um, walked him through a lot of the steps. And um, turns out he had, a, he, had a very, he had a lot of similarities to my situation being an American growing up in a you know, very interesting kind of um, background, I'd say. Like, he's, he also dealt with some, you know, discriminatory aspects, being a Palestinian in, in a uh, in an Irish kind of uh, area of where he was from. So that was kind of something which was which was interesting to learn from him. But when I helped him, my intention was, was just to be like, here, let me help you. I don't want anything from it. It's all good. And it went from that to me becoming his uh, team manager. So like, you know, I've helped set everything up for him uh, now, like officially with the Federation. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to help him get to the Olympics. So nice. we'll, we'll see if we can get him. You know? My have my how the the torch hasn't even been passed. It's the history becoming not repeating itself, but literally being paid for that. He's another American that wants to rope Rofa Palestine, your story inspired him. Now he has you on his team to navigate through these things so that we, we have this saying in the black community, because of them, we can. And because of you, mm-hmm. he can. Congratulations, mm-hmm. man. That's, that's beautiful. And that actually takes care of the sequence of what I would say normally next is what's next for Mark. But <laughs> <laughs> so we have the book coming out, uh, self-publishing book coming out. Uh, well, not self-publishing, but self-written autobiography book about a lot of stuff that we just talked about. Plus mm. team, not even mentoring, but team managing the next gen Palestinian rower. Yeah. Yeah. And we're actually, um, our story is actually being kind of like reviewed right now by some um, news network, um, not news networks, the media networks mm-hmm. um, for potential documentary. Um, so I can't. I Are can't you saying you're going to have a Netflix documentary about you? <laughs> no, 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 not there yet, but um, <laughs> yeah, keyword yet. Let's just, say, let's just say that for for the time being, um, there's so there's been some interest um, due to. Funny enough to do to Amel um, for him picking up picking up things, but because of the history behind it mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that I've documented a heck of, the heck out of it, um, there might actually be an interesting story to tell. So nice. um, yeah, yeah, we hope that, that 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 can turn out to be something interesting. So we'll see. Yeah. All right, before we go, there's one more sequence that I do. Last name's Gamble. Sure. I bought. Yeah. I bought a roulette table filled with 16 shot glasses that coordinate to a question. We spin the roulette wheel, comes up with a number. I ask the question, you answer it. Okay, let's do it. All righty. Spin the magic wheel around, round and round and round it goes where it's about nobody knows. Number five. All right. A job or a project that you wish you have completed but never got the chance to. Um, hmm. A job, a project. Let's an I achievement. Gotta, I have to really think about this. A it can be an achievement. Project. It can be an achievement in sports. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, from a sports perspective, no, um, anything. 
Well, if it, I mean, it's easier with the sports. Okay. <laughs> work has been uh, generally, uh, at least from getting stuff done, that's kind of what I've learned to do is be super focused. Mm-hmm. And if I want to get something done, it gets done. Um, and I've actually, you know, from that viewpoint, um, you know, working for one of the largest car companies in the world, and I've got 40 filed patents on us with them, um, is a pretty astounding feat. And also inventing stuff, but also rolling stuff out for me has been really, really cool. So I think from that point, that was already an impressive thing. So I don't think it would be professionally really where to have some pieces I fell down. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say from a rowing perspective, one of the things I really wish I, I was able to do was uh, to have had um, more like a team boat for Palestine. That's something mm-hmm. which I kind of regret. I think it's like, Timing wise, uh, you know, uh, ML is about 15 years, a little <laughs> late for me. Well, otherwise it might it would... be late for you, but <laughs> as a team manager, you might find some more athletes to have a two man at least, or maybe even a four. Yeah. Yeah. To get, to get a team boat or something a little bit bigger. Um, so that, you know, when you're competing and you're not alone, I mean, doing things by yourself is really hard mm-hmm. and it takes a very special mentality. Yeah. But having like a team boat, that would be that would be pretty cool. Pretty cool. Let's see if we can make that happen. You know, I'll support it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. So if people want to follow uh Mr. Mark Jaban and stuff he's doing or and or the uh as the team manager of the new uh Palestine Rowing Federation or the athlete, where can they find him or where can they find information? Uh, oh, great question. Uh, well, we have our, we have at least like the, uh, the Facebook page for the Palestinian Rowing and Failing, Sailing Federation. Um, so it's not really anything where people are following me uh, anymore. Um, but like, I think, you know, we're really more there to, to support Amel and the Federation so that he can get to his next step. And then we're also on social media. So like my profiles are out there. Um, people can tell the people they don't know where. Yeah, well, at least like on on, on LinkedIn, uh, my name or or Facebook. Uh, Mark Gerban, M A R K G E R B A N. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and uh, yeah, it's a lot of other places. I'd say just where uh, you know, if you see me at a conference where I'm presenting or or at a show, then feel free to come up and, and chat. Be fun. And where uh, uh, does the athlete have a personal athletic page or is it all done like a personal social media page or is it all done through the Federation? Uh, everything's basically done through the Federation, but I think, I think we're probably a bit overdue. We probably should get a male page up. <laughs> yeah. I think we should get him a page up so people can support him and Palestine. Yeah. Yeah. Fair yeah. point. Fair point. <laughs> And if you're not doing it already, make sure you follow at Gamble's Green Room on Instagram so you can stay up to date of all of my guests, some behind the scenes goodies, as well as some uh, clips of the things that they have been doing, are doing, or going to be doing. And uh, yeah, Marky Mark, G-Funk, my little bro, thank you for doing this so much. Thanks for sharing so much information. Yeah, like it's that's as I say, the people you need to know with the stories you want to hear. These are some stories, and there's not even everything that we talked about. So uh uh love you very much, dude. We will talk again soon. We'll see each other soon. Thanks again for doing this. Thank you, Mikey. Love you too, man. Love you. Bye.